0: Hello, yoga teacher. Welcome to episode 33, a conversation about practicing and teaching meditation with Kelly Smith, founder of Yoga for You and host of the podcast Mindful in Minutes. The craziness of the holiday season is behind us now, but as yoga teachers, we're about to jump into a different kind of craziness. It's the season of New Year's resolutions and often the season of jam packed yoga classes. During this high season for yoga, it's more important than ever for us as yoga teachers to stay steady with our personal practice. Travel, parties, and our kids home from school can really put a kink into our routines. So today's episode with Kelly is going to be a really great way to refocus and bring you back to center. In today's episode, Kelly shares practical tips to help you strengthen your meditation practice. She shares strategies for teaching your students and also advice on how to talk to people about meditation who haven't yet experienced the benefits. About halfway through the episode, Kelly and I get personal, and we share how meditation helps both of us navigate anxiety. And we also talk about the intersection between perfectionism and anxiety. I want to encourage you to listen all the way until the end, because I am going to share a discount code for any of Kelly's online meditation and yoga nidra courses in the outro to the episode. So on that note, let's get started with today's conversation.
1: I'm really excited about this topic. I am too. I mean, this is my love. So I do
0: feel that meditation is incredibly important. By many definitions, it is almost synonymous with the word yoga. Yes. I mean, it is one of the limbs. Well, it's not just one of the limbs, but if you, I mean, it's like four
1: of the limbs. Right. Right. I mean, it's, (laughs) so (laughs) I, I always tell people like in my 200 hour teacher training, I'm like, I'm like, it's like the neglected limb because it's so, I mean, it's so much and you don't learn a whole lot about it and people don't really know how to teach it and share it. And it seems so like mysterious to people. And it's just, I, I think it's so important. It's one of my loves.
0: And from a classical yoga point of view, it's, it is the essential tool of yes. achieving a correct understanding of ourselves.
1: Right, right. It's that journey to the self, through the self.
0: And, and that is yoga. So. Yes. <laughs> and, and yet, I know from a lot of my conversations with yoga teachers that many yoga teachers struggle with meditation. hmm And they also struggle with how to talk about meditation to their students and how to sell them. You know, the word sell is not the word that we particularly prefer to use, but ultimately that's, yeah, yeah, that is what we're doing is we need to convince them or we would like to convince them for their own benefit to try this, to work with this. And yet the benefits of meditation require a lot of investment. Yes. And it takes time. That is a big challenge because people tend to look for quick fixes. Yep. So that is definitely something I would love to talk to you about. Yeah. Maybe we could begin with a little bit about
1: your journey into meditation and what, how you got started. What made you fall in love? I started uh, teaching yoga or I started practicing yoga when I was young. And um, I was very just in it for the physical. Like a lot of people, I got into it for the physical. I was even... I'm what I call a shavasana skipper. So when I was like, Oh, well, the calories are burned. I'm done. I'm going to roll up the mat and off I go. And, um, but it wasn't until I was in high school and my mom was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer and um, I was her primary caregiver. And so I started to do some of the research into the therapeutic benefits of yoga and she couldn't practice in the way that she used to, obviously after many surgeries and um, extensive treatment. And so we started to explore more restorative yoga and meditation and that really gentle, like therapeutic movement. And that's when I kind of fell in love with the practice but also fell in love with teaching Uh, but I still went and did the responsible thing and I went and I got a college degree and got a uh, a big girl job working in management and then um, right after I graduated college, I did my 200-hour training, and I was only, I was just dabbling a little bit, and um, I I would say I was still very much like a physical asana teacher, and then it wasn't until um, my now husband, then boyfriend, he got into medical school. We were living in Minneapolis, and then we were moved to this, what I lovingly call, a one-bar, one-Walmart town, and I had to leave um, my career, and I had to leave Everything and moved to um, this small town in Missouri. And it was when I moved there that I was like, I've always dreamed of making yoga my life and my career. And so I decided that, you know, I, I knew I was going to be there for a few years. And it's kind of the universe giving me that kick in the butt saying, I'm going to take everything away from you and you have this, this opportunity to start new. And so I started really teaching and ultimately ended up um, opening up a studio there and serving a lot of those people that don't feel like they fit. In the traditional yoga studio, they feel like you know they don 't look like that yogi that you see on instagram, and they 're not flexible and they 're not this enough they 're not that enough, so surely they can 't do yoga um, and so I really started serving those people and doing a lot of private sessions and and diving deep and began offering teacher trainings and kind of building this community that wasn 't there before and I did that for about three years, and then my husband and I moved again, and when I had owned my studio, I had been working for I was burning the candle at both ends. And I would say I was still pretty much a very physical teacher, a very asana-based teacher because the students I was serving were ones that weren't necessarily that interested in anything but the physical. They were very wary of things like meditation, um, even pranayama, things like that. And I was working like 80 to 90 hours a week. I would try to take two days off each month. And I didn't always do that. And I just overworked myself. And so then we moved and I sold the studio. And again, I had kind of the start over moment and I became very sick. Like I was sleeping all the time. My body was run down. It took me months to finally be able to like recuperate because I completely burnt myself out. And I realized like, I can't keep harming myself in this way. I can't keep going, going, going and wearing down my body and and so I really started to explore meditation and yoga nidra and restorative yoga and these things that I enjoyed, but never really had made like a part of my practice. And I really dove into that and kind of, I don't know, transformed from this really physical teacher to doing things like um now my guided meditations podcast and working one-on-one with people teaching meditation and then doing meditation and yoga nidra teacher trainings and really diving into um, those aspects of the practice. And so that's kind of, that's what I'm doing now is really focusing on um, more of the meditation and, and some of the other limbs other than just the asana. I always tell people just to start small, you can, I mean, probably in every class you're going to have shavasana. And that is the absolute best opportunity to kind of introduce someone to meditation. I know that not everyone is ne- necessarily buys into the idea of meditation when you call it that, but I find that if you just start doing even a short little mini guided meditation with someone in Shavasana, that they love it and they'll be like, oh, wow. Kelly, I loved that you know thing that you did at the end, that vis- visualization at the end. What was it? And I'll be like, Oh, that's just a little guided meditation, and it can just be a few minutes, and that that sort of introduces the student to it. And they're like, Oh, and once people experience meditation and they realize it's not this big, kind of mysterious, like mythical thing they're like, oh, I really liked that. That felt really great. I would like to explore more. And then that's kind of your, um, your little foot in the door to then start to educate your students on meditation and also um, help them learn that practice.
0: So this would be a great place to ask you to weigh in on the question about the position for meditation because there are, are some people who advise that you need to be upright for meditation. Mm-hmm. And there are others who say, you know what, it's going to depend on the person. Yes, you might get sleepy if you try to meditate prone for too long, or I guess that would be supine for too long. But if your body's really uncomfortable in a seated position and that's your barrier to meditation, <laughs> maybe
1: supine is better. So what are your thoughts about supine versus seated? Yeah, I, I think that. No magic happens if you are sitting on the floor or a cushion with legs crossed doing your meditation. To me, that's just a shape that you put your body in. Um, I always teach my students, and then also those that are learning how to teach meditation, that it depends on each student and their body. Um, A lot of this comes from the experience that I have working with people who maybe are recovering from injuries or they're extremely tight, they're not your traditional yogi, maybe they can't get onto the floor. And you know, sit in your traditional easy seated position, so I always say that you need to find a position in which your spine can be long, you can breathe, your, so your diaphragm can move without any restriction. Um, you want to make sure that you are comfortable, so you won't be pulled out of that practice because you know, "Oh, my hip is aching, my back is aching, but not so comfortable you think that you will fall asleep. Uh, and so that's usually what I tell people, and then I teach a bunch of different variations. Um, one of my teachers taught people um, just to sit in a chair. So you sit in a chair, you bring your feet onto the floor, kind of root down into the ground, and then you can sit there for a little bit longer. It's also very accessible pose. And it's something that you can translate to a lot of stuff. So if someone is wheelchair bound, right, you can, you can have them meditate in that position. Uh, And I really just think it depends on the student and saying, no, this is the only way that you can meditate, or it must be this way. It must be that way. I think that It it can be a very tough sell because we know, especially as yoga teachers, everyone's body is so different. Just like if you say you absolutely have to have your foot at this degree in warrior one, well, what if someone has an injury or what if someone has something going on in their body? They physically can't do that. What are you going to say? Oh, well then you can't practice yoga, I guess. Get out right? You're not going to do that to them. And it's the same with meditation. Um, So like I personally like to meditate lying on my back with knees bent and feet on the floor. To me, that's just my position, but I always challenge my students and empower them to try different variations and find one or two positions that really works for them. And so then they just have kind of their go-to positions, but I I don't really like to, um, you know, say this is the, you know, the end all be all meditation positions. You must do this or you can't do it.
0: I'm glad that you said that. I really appreciate it because I have to admit that I
1: sometimes feel guilty
0: for not, if I try to meditate lying down and like you feel lazy. Yeah. I feel like I'm lazy. Like I'm not doing it right. I'm not a proper yoga
1: teacher. (laughs) Yeah. That's baloney. You can stop doing that. (laughs) that's a baloney as long as you can breathe as long as your spine is long as long as i always tell people if you're going to lie on your back like for example my mom um who is you know my inspiration for doing all of this and she also is now a yoga teacher she went through one of my trainings it was kind of like this really beautiful full circle moment but she is notorious for falling asleep places like as long as i can remember and i don't know how she does it i have all of these memories of like her falling asleep in the most random places, like standing up, slumping over, all these things. So when I was teaching her this portion of my yoga teacher training, I was like, mom, your position is not lying down. I said, you can fall asleep standing up. I said, so this is just not your position. But if you're not one of those people, that's, I mean, that's a very comfortable position. It's also great because as soon as someone goes into Shavasana, I mean, you can start They're they're already in position. They don't have to, you know, really do anything, any extra setup. And so as a teacher, um, it's very, it's very useful as well to teach people. They can, you know, do those different positions.
0: So you're kind of sneaking a meditation in if you yeah, do it
1: I, I believe in, in sneaky teaching sometimes
0: <laughs> on that note of getting sleepy. That is yes. also a big obstacle that people have what yes. to do about sleepiness.
1: And, and I know sleepiness is a big issue for a lot of people um, because I personally have to do a lot of um, waking up snores during group meditations. It happens a lot. And I'm sure a lot of the teachers that are listening right now, they know there's been that person that, you know, is snoring during Shavasana or whatever it is. It happens. Um, so I know that sleepiness is a big issue. And that's where I go into um, really finding that position that works for you. And you want to find something that is comfortable, but not so comfortable that you could fall asleep there. So a lot of times I teach people um, this position. It's called I call it the saddle um, and then one of my dear students. I was actually I had a module of teacher training last weekend uh, started calling it the straddle saddle So I think that might be my new name for it because I like that better But it's basically a way in which you can take Um, you take a few bolsters and you kind of stack them up one on top of the other And then you almost like straddle the bolsters put a blanket underneath you and then your knees are on the floor But you're just kind of in, um, it's almost like a supported hero's pose, but a little bit higher. And then you can keep your spine long. For a lot of people, unless you have knee injuries, that's going to be really comfortable, but you're certainly not going to fall asleep in that position. And so if people really have troubles with like that sleepiness, um, I encourage them to then find a different position. Or if someone's going to, you know, sit in a chair or something like that, like a lot of times, unless it's like this big comfy lazy boy, you're comfortable, but you, you won't fall asleep. And I I also think it's important too, though, to listen to those signals. Like sometimes I will fall asleep in my meditation or I have students that will say, oh, I'm not sure if I am really deep into my meditation or if I was sleeping. And usually I tell them, you know the difference. Like, Like once you experience it, you know that that deep meditation is very different from sleep, but sometimes, and I will admit it, sometimes I fall asleep during my meditation. It happens. And a lot of times that's a reminder to me that I've been overdoing it and my body needs rest. It's not, oh, I failed my meditation. Oh, I'm a bad yogi, whatever it is. Like if I'm falling asleep during my meditation, I need to listen to that. And my body clearly needs to rest. Thank you for saying that. And thank you for
0: admitting that you also fall asleep during your meditation because all of this so far is making me feel
1: a lot better about. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think (laughs) practice. Yes. I think that we need to all just start being a little more human around here. And I don't know. I just think we need to start letting our humanness show. I mean, it happens. It happens. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher. It doesn't matter if you're a student. You're going to do things. You're going to fall asleep during meditation. You're, as a teacher, you're going to mess up your words no matter how long you've been teaching. You're going to do all these things that are totally human. You know, you're going to feel tired. You're going to struggle. There's going to be days you don't want to get on your mat. It doesn't matter if you're a teacher or not or how long you've been teaching. Those things are going to happen. And so I really believe in, and we just don't talk about it enough. And it's, I mean, it's real. It's, it's the truth
0: how do we talk to our yoga students about this? What do I, what do we say to our yoga students that is a succinct and accessible way of sharing that with them when we don't have time to go into all the history of yoga?
1: So there's a couple of ways that I go about it when I'm trying to just, you know, give them that little nugget. So I do a few things. A lot of times what I'll do is I will tell people, um, you know, people who are very physical asana based, I'll be like, did you know that these physical poses were actually invented so that people could sit in their meditation position for longer? i was like, did you know they're like the last part to really be invented? Because, you know, what we used to think of as now meditation or pranayama used to really be what they thought of as yoga. And so they had to, you know, I, I always explain it like it's very hard to sit in your meditation for a long time if your back is always hurting and your hips are tight and your body is you know stiff and sore. So, so these poses, what you're doing right now, that we kind of think of as the practice of yoga, that's actually kind of that last little piece. It was invented to help people um, sit in their meditation for longer. And a lot of times that kind of like piques people's interest. Uh, and then I'll usually either explain it that way or I'll say I'll be like, oh, like have you ever heard of this thing like the eight limbs of yoga? Some people might be like, oh, yeah, I've heard of it. Or some people are like, no, what's that. And I'll say it's just the different components of yoga. Uh, and actually, the asanas, the poses that we're doing, that's, that's only one of them. So when we come and we just put our body into shapes, so we're only practicing about one-eighth of yoga. Another big component of it is uh, the breath, and another one is meditation as well. And to me, they're just as important, and they're all um, equal parts of the practice. So that's usually, that's usually how I tell people. And then, and then they usually have, you know, they're just a little inquisitive, and then you can go from there.
0: Around here meaning around this podcast <laughs> we've I've been talking a lot recently about personal practice and how important personal practice is and when I think about teaching meditation just the same as with asana that you have to practice before you can teach that you have to practice to feed your teaching and so to me one of the things I I would love to do with this episode is inspire any yoga teachers who are listening, who have let their meditation practice lapse to just inspire them to pick it back up. And I wonder if you have any tips for,
1: you know, staying regular, staying inspired. Yes, absolutely. And one thing that I will add to that is also any teachers that are listening that do not currently have a meditation practice. I've run into a lot of yoga teachers um, that they didn't they haven't really learned that much about meditation. I think it's something, um, I was even told once I've been told a few times when people have thought about, um, adopting my 200 hour training at their studio or whatever it is. They're like, Oh, meditation. Like you don't need to cover that. That's like a, that's a 300, 500, you know, hour level type thing. Like that's, you know, you, you should be focusing on the asana and, and I think a lot of teachers, and I also, I have people that will come, they've already done a 200-hour training. And I was actually, earlier today, I was listening um, to one of the earlier episodes, and um, you and your guests were talking about um, you know just Yoga Alliance standards and you know the direction that it's moving and how a lot of people can be kind of disappointed in their 200-hour training. And I get a lot of people that are taking a 200-hour training again because they didn't feel like they got what they needed from the first one. And one of those big missing pieces is meditation. And it's just not a part of the curriculum. It's not something that is important. And so I think it's not only, you know, do I have tips for those people who have maybe let their practice lapse, but also those people who want to set up a meditation practice. Because I think it's so true. Like you can't share something you don't know, right? Like just like, I don't, I don't know how to speak Spanish. So I certainly cannot teach someone how to speak Spanish, right? It's just, you can't do that. And so if you really want to share meditation with people, you have to be able to at least pull from your experience. Now, I will say that there are tons of styles of meditation there, I mean, as many stars in the sky, there are styles of meditation. Uh, Usually a lot of what you'll be teaching is like a guided meditation or a breath awareness meditation, or perhaps like a present moment meditation. So I encourage you to um, explore those styles if you haven't yet. But I will say, so I'll start with the people that have lapsed. We'll start with you. So if you have lapsed uh, in your meditation practice, I really encourage you to just start back into it. And I know that sounds so simple, like, well, of course, if I'm going to do it, I'm just going to do it. But the way I describe it is you want to treat your meditation practice as if it is this appointment that you would never break. So think about an appointment with someone, whether it's you know your dermatologist, You know, if you miss this appointment, it's going to be six months before you get another one, right? No matter what pops up in that day, you're going to make that appointment. And I want you to treat your meditation practice with that same sense of priority And I'm not asking for a lot of time. I always tell people, even if it's just 10 minutes every day, that's it. You don't have to sit there for an hour. You don't have to sit there for 30 minutes. The research shows us anywhere from eight to 12 minutes a day is enough. So I usually say, shoot for just 10 minutes every day, set a timer, practice your meditation. It could be listening to a guided meditation. It could be just becoming still. It could be listening to your breath. It could be, you know, any style of meditation. And then when the timer goes off, you're done and treat that appointment like it like it is an appointment that you would never ever break. You know, your best friends in town from a different country and you're meeting them for lunch, right? No matter what, you're going to make that lunch. But I want you to treat this meditation practice just like that. And I usually encourage people to do either the first 10 minutes of the day or the last 10 minutes of the day, because everything else in your whole day is going to vary, right? I have a lot of people that at first they come to me and they're like, well, I think I'm going to do my meditation practice during my lunch hour. I'm like, okay, that, you know, in theory, that sounds really great, right? But how many times have we intended to do something over our lunch hour and something pops up? And then we're like, oh, well, now I have to deal with this or I have to go run that errand or I have to go do this thing for my kids or whatever it is. So your whole day can be an absolute mystery and things can pop up all the time. But at some point, hopefully you'll go to sleep at night and you'll wake up the next morning. So if you do either the last 10 minutes, so those 10 minutes right before bed or the first 10 minutes when you wake up in the morning, that is how you can keep it regular. And those things won't kind of pop up and say, oh, you know, don't forget about me. Go do this thing. Go do something else. Um, So that's usually how I get people back into the habit. And then you just do it. Times you won't want to. Sometimes you'll be like, no, I don't really want to do my meditation. It doesn't matter. Don't break the appointment and just get back into the habit.
0: That's really good advice. I always advise people to do their practice meditation, asana, whatever whatever their self-care practice is, first thing in the morning, just like what you said. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear you say last thing at night. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't considered that before. Or I mean I have considered it before. I've done it before, but I do find that I'm extra sleepy. Yes. When I do it that way.
1: Yeah. So And the reason that I've come up with kind of the first 10 or the last 10, like I think when I first started teaching, I always thought, oh, the first 10 minutes, like that would be best. Um, But as I started to work with more and more people, there are a lot of people out there and I bet some of your listeners are these people. They are not morning people. They are not going to pop out of bed and do something. It is going to be an uphill battle for them. So I'm talking about your traditional night owls or like I personally do a last 10, even though I'm a morning person. But the reason that I do it is because I need that meditation practice. Like my day is just so busy and it's spinning and you know I'm a yogipreneur and doing all these things. And I need that time to turn the volume down on my mind and to go inward so that I can sleep basically.
0: That's really interesting because I do listen to a guided meditation as I fall asleep. mm mm-hmm but I didn't think I could count that as my
1: meditation <laughs> practice. <laughs> well, you probably won't want to use it necessarily to fall asleep. Like, I mean, I have an entire album just of sleep meditations and that people use to fall asleep. So people with insomnia, you know, sleep disturbances, things like that. And I don't, I don't know if that totally counts. It doesn't not count. It's like a, you know, you will definitely still want that time in which you work on your meditation where you stay awake the whole time. So usually I'll, I kind of have an evening routine. I usually take a shower. I'll do my 10 minutes of meditation and then I'll get into bed and I'll read a book and go to bed.
0: Okay, so you do something else afterwards too. Yes, I don't.
1: Sometimes I will use a guided meditation, like if I just can't sleep to like lull me to sleep, but it's not like the same as doing a complete practice, like where you stay awake and conscious the entire time and do that internal work
0: what I do is I listen to a longer guided meditation. It's not necessarily, it's not specifically for falling asleep, Mm -hmm. but I attempt to actually meditate, but eventually I fall asleep. Yes. Or or I just get relaxed (laughs) enough to fall asleep afterwards. That
1: sometimes happens too,
0: probably depending on, you know, how sleep deprived I am or whatever.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think a lot of people do that. I always just caution people, um, because we all know, and if you've ever read uh, The Power of Habit, right, that book with like the bright yellow cover, about a lot of your listeners have read it or at least seen it. We know that to create a habit, what you're doing is you basically have like a trigger or a stimulus and then a response to that. And if you start making guided meditations that trigger meditating, that trigger to then induce sleep. Every time that you try to meditate, you're going to fall right asleep. I think it's a really great thing to use like every once in a while, or if you have some kind of like a sleep disorder, or you just really struggle with insomnia and you need something to get you to fall asleep, it's a great tool. But I usually caution people to, if they start using that every night to fall asleep, then when you go and you try to meditate on your own, instantly your body's going to go, oh, this is my sleep trigger. And you're going to get really sleepy and you might fall asleep.
0: Okay. Good advice. I usually, mm-hmm. so right now I try to do both Perfect. first and last. Yes. And w- what I figure is that that way, even if I like somehow don't keep the appointment, at least I've kept one per day.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're an overachiever because you have two appointments a day. Right. Cold but time. I'm Cold giving,
0: time. I'm not, but I'm, I'm trying to not be a perfectionist about it. Cause that gives me a leeway. It gives me an out right to, yes. it gives me an out to either fall asleep kind of soon on my last mm-hmm. one or. To get distracted by making coffee or whatever on my first one. No, sometimes it's it's usually kids. If it, if it interrupts me, it's my
1: kids. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Are you a perfectionist type? Oh, yes. Are you? Yeah. So do you find that meditation is um, tricky for you because you're often in your head? Yes. I know you're supposed to be interviewing me, but I'm curious. No, no, no. (laughs) Because that's something I come across that a lot. Uh, Just with my students, I do a lot of one-on-one meditation teaching and training. And I find that people that have kind of that type A or that perfectionist mentality, meditation can be really tricky because you get very fixated on like, am I doing this right? Like, am I following the meditation rules? Am I, you know, and then you get into your own head and it can be hard to actually then kind of turn down some of the noise. And so I was just curious what your personal thought on that was, if that's a struggle that you've had.
0: It is. And I've also been recently kind of understanding that perfectionism and anxiety go hand in hand, that for me at least, I think those are, they're really interrelated, if not the same thing. And I didn't know for most of my life, I did not know that I had anxiety, did not have words for the experience of inadequacy, fear, fear, you know, that's like generalized fear is what anxiety is. But I didn't have that word to help me understand what was going on for me. And so instead of learning how to deal with it, I would just be reactive and try to find a solution outside of myself. So that's just having that word has been really empowering for me Mm
1: -hmm. because now I understand that the solution is inside myself. Yes. And I, I work with so many people. I would say one of the top reasons um, that people start working with me for meditation and even, even yoga um, is their anxiety. That is probably the number one. Thing. It's also one of the top um, requested topics on my podcast. I have several anxiety meditations and every week people are sending me emails being like, can you do some more anxiety meditations? Um, I would say anxiety and sleep uh, but I would say those also go hand in hand, people who um, suffer from anxiety, or even if they're just having kind of a flare up of anxiety, your sleep usually is one of the first things that starts to be a challenge or starts to suffer. But I always tell people perfection does not exist, right? It does not exist. It is not a real thing. It is a myth. And so if that's what you're going towards, if that's what you're trying to drive yourself towards, you can just let go of that now. You I tell people it.
0: that too, but, yeah. but
1: that do you believe it
0: yourself? Well, that's the thing. It it doesn't, the drive towards perfectionism is not really a logical forebrain well thought through situation. Yes. I understand that perfection is, does not exist. Mm -hmm. And I coach my clients and I tell my friends and Mm -hmm. I tell myself and I coach myself on that, but the pattern will be with me for the rest of my life. I know that because this is, developed along with my personality. Like it is deeply
1: ingrained in me and it can get better
0: and I can have tools to manage it. And meditation is one of those tools.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think it's honestly one of the strongest tools that you probably have. I've seen such transformation. I personally, a lot of the reason I got into meditation um, was because of my own personal struggles with anxiety because it just, it always feels like I always describe it as like the hamster spinning in the wheel. Like you feel like you're just going and going and going and and spinning and the mind is always spinning and, and it can just create this really awful environment for you to live in within your own body. And if we can learn how to just, you know, I, I always describe meditation like it's not a light switch. You're not just going to, you know, turn yourself on or off. It's like a dimmer switch. You're going to start, you know, turning the volume down a little bit, but it can be one of the most powerful tools that not only you have, but it can be one of the most powerful tools that you give your students as a teacher. I mean, it truly is one of the most wonderful gifts that you can give someone if even if you can help them have a tool to whether it's, you know, reduce their anxiety or even quiet the chatter, you know, a lot of chatter is is negative. A lot of what we say to ourselves is unkind. If you can give them a tool to quiet that down, that's probably one of the best gifts that you can that you can give one of your students.
0: Absolutely. One of the other benefits of meditation a greater awareness of what my thought patterns are. And then really my meditation practice ends up weaving in throughout my day. So whenever I notice like, oh, I'm noticing that I'm anxious, I will basically use meditation in that moment to help me self-regulate. Even yes. if i like at the grocery store or driving or whatever is going on, the meditation is like, it's like the... I don't know, the practice or the laboratory or the place where I develop
1: the skills that I then take out into my day. Yeah. Meditation is really just becoming an observer of yourself. And there is so much that we do on autopilot, so much that we do that we're completely unaware of, different patterns, different tendencies, different You know, different thoughts that we have. And when we slow down and we finally observe, you can learn so much. I really, truly believe that your body and your mind and your soul, whatever you want to call it, it will tell you everything that you need to know, but can you turn down the noise and can you become still enough and actually listen? Yeah. I'd love to
0: start to get into a little bit more practical advice for yoga teachers. I know that we started by talking about Bringing it into Shavasana. So, what other advice do you have for yoga teachers?
1: I think that if you want to start sharing the practice of meditation, a great way to do it is through a workshop. So, you can do like an intro to meditation workshop. You could do it, and you know, it could be a a sixty-minute, a ninety-minute workshop where you can just educate people very briefly on like the foundations of meditation, the history, the roots, and then help people work through some of these these questions, even questions that you and I have explored today, like. Well, what position am I supposed to meditate in, or how long am I supposed to meditate for, what time of day, or you know, what uh, what style of meditation? I've heard of you know this thing called transcendental meditation. Should I be doing that, or should I be you know listening to a meditation podcast, whatever it is? And so you can wherever you're teaching, especially if you're teaching like in a a studio space, you probably already have at least somewhat of a captive audience, and maybe the studio owner will let you offer a workshop um, like that. And then you can have people and you can just, you know, maybe give them an hour talking about just the foundations of the practice, the absolute basics that they need to know. And then just start having a dialogue and helping people with their personal practice for 30 minutes. I think that's such a great way to introduce this practice. And you can, you can choose, I always make my, my intro to meditation workshops, I always make them either free or quite affordable. So it depends on um you know, where you're working and, you know, the, the payment model, whatever it is, you know, if it's costing you quite a bit of money to rent the space by all means, you know, make sure you make up that cost. Um, maybe your studio owner, or you have a space where they're just willing to let you use it, um, for this workshop. Then if you don't, I, I feel that if you make it a little bit more casual and low stakes, you don't charge that much. you're just kind of like, no, like just, just come and just learn a little bit more. And then you have those people that are maybe always thought about it, been curious about it, and then they'll come in and, and they'll want to learn a little bit more.
0: It might be nice to do that kind of a workshop as a fundraiser, like for a charity. Yes.
1: yes I love that idea. It's also, you can go, um, I, don't, I don't know if a lot of your listeners uh, teach like corporate yoga or go on site and teach different things, but I do a lot of like lunch and learns. So I will go, um, maybe different clients will have me come to their office and just over the lunch hour. just, you know, it's not even like a real formal presentation. It's just, just like a little bit of like a lunch and learn. And it's a great way for people to just understand more and they can ask you questions and you can kind of open up that dialogue because so many people have heard about meditation. They've maybe, you know, Googled it or seen it, but they just, they have a lot of questions about it and they need someone to answer those questions before they know how to dive into the practice.
0: You know what I would love to see is a intro to meditation workshop that leads into a series of guided group meditations where the group can stay together and provide some accountability. And to me, doing meditation in a group is completely different from doing it by myself. I mean, I think that they both have benefits, but I find it much easier to achieve a meditative state in a group than by myself. That's
1: interesting because I feel the other way. And I think that All of the big breakthroughs that I've had in my meditation practice has been when I'm alone, but I think that it, it depends so much on the individual. And I love what you had to say about, you know, it would be such, I think that's such a great idea to give an intro to meditation. And then maybe you give people the opportunity at the end to then, you know, opt into a series or something like that. And, and then I do think with a group that has that accountability piece, which is crucial because we know right? As yoga teachers, we know that a lot of times people have great intentions, but they don't have that, that commitment and that follow through. It's just, it's not really going to happen. Like for some people it will, but for most it won't. Uh, and so I do, I love that idea. I think that's a great option, but yeah, I love, I love what you said about you like to meditate in groups. Cause I personally like to meditate alone and I don't think either one is wrong. I think it's just what works for you. What's your, you know, what's your formula.
0: I like to meditate both in groups and alone. Mm-hmm. I mostly meditate alone because that's what works for my life and my schedule. But I find it easier to drop into a meditative state in a group of people, not like a random group of people who's right. doing whatever, <laughs> but a group of people who are also meditating. Yes. yes. Yeah. And if somebody were to offer a series like that, you could even, you know, you could really advertise it as accountability and start each class with a check-in, maybe not just to the whole group, like maybe just to one other person of Mm. how many days last week did you meditate?
1: Yeah, I love that idea. That's a great idea. Listeners get on that. That's a wonderful idea.
0: You know, and the other thing is that if you commit to teaching a meditation series, that's really going to kind of put you on the spot for your own practice.
1: Yep. You better, you better know your stuff and you better, you better practice and, you know, you better, you better feel confident in what you're sharing.
0: But I do think it also is an inspiration.
1: Like if you schedule that,
0: I think you're going to be motivated to really stick to
1: and, you know, develop and devote yourself to your practice. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's such a great point. If you think that you want to start teaching meditation, I'd really encourage you to go find a teacher. If you feel like you don't have the tools, go find a teacher that can help you because meditation is this beautiful and wonderful transformative practice, but it also, it can be challenging and it can be something that you may need some help with. And so if you think you want to start teaching meditation, but you're just starting your journey, I'd encourage you to also go find, um go find a teacher that can help you with it.
0: I was going to ask you how important you think it is to have a
1: meditation teacher. Even, you know, even if you did
0: get some meditation training in your yoga teacher training, do you think it's helpful to have a personal relationship with a teacher, somebody that you see in person? Do you think it's adequate to have, you know, say recordings? What are your thoughts on that?
1: My personal thought on almost all teaching is you're going to get... Farther, faster with a deep relationship with the teacher that you work one on one with. That is just my personal feeling about anything. It's the reason, you know, I only teach a few group classes a week, but I spend a bunch of time doing private sessions, especially something with meditation. It's so personal. I mean, you're taking a journey to your true self. I mean, how can you do that necessarily once you get to a certain point? How can you do that in a group or with other people? like you 're going to need someone that can help you on that personal journey that only you will ever take. I think that of course we 're talking you know when you start to get to a different level of meditation when you start to get really deep. But my personal belief just in general is you get the most out of having one on one time with a teacher that can help you with your personal practice, um, but I know that 's not also accessible to everyone, so I think it is absolutely fine to you know, whether it's have recordings or, you know, you can have a teacher that maybe you don't even necessarily know. It could be someone that you follow that has resources, things like that. And because, you know, I am very aware of the fact that it's not always accessible or possible for you to have a a, a teacher, a one-on-one teacher, or maybe one hasn't appeared yet for you. And you can you can definitely start with like the resources and recordings and, and things like that. Um, or maybe even just a student that's a little bit more advanced than you can share some things. But I think it's I think the best option is always kind of that one-to-one student-teacher relationship. And also as personal things pop up, which they will, as you start to get more into your, into your meditation, you can say, oh, Kelly, I had this experience. A lot of times people ask me, like, is that normal? <laughs> so people ask me all the time, like, is that normal? Um, and my answer is, well, my answer is usually, well, it doesn't matter. What is normal? Everyone's taking a personal journey. So it's all going to be different. But I think that when you start to do that deep work or have these breakthroughs, it's good to have someone, even if it's just as a sounding board to be like, Hey, I had this, this interesting experience. Like, what do you think that was? And then you can just, I think it'll help you get a little bit deeper.
0: We talk a lot about the business of yoga on this podcast. And what I've noticed is that people seem, this is kind of a blanket statement, so it doesn't apply to everybody, (laughs) but I don't, I'm curious if you've noticed the same thing that there, there tends to be more resistance in paying for meditation instruction versus asana instruction. And that doesn't make any sense to me because to, like the depths of the potential benefits of meditation so far outweigh the benefits of asana. But I think that there may be a disconnect with the way that we talk about meditation and what people are understanding about the potential benefits of asana versus meditation. That's the only thing that makes sense to me as far as like, why are people more willing to pay for asana and not willing to pay for meditation?
1: Yeah. I think also part of it is with asana, like you can start to see the changes. I think a lot of times people treat one-on-one yoga sessions as kind of like a personal trainer. And that's something where there's a little bit of, um, you know, it's a little bit of a status quo there. People know generally, like, oh, well, I mean, I would pay X amount of dollars for a personal trainer. So it makes sense to pay X amount of dollars for a private yoga teacher. But I, I think that with meditation, it's like you don't see the results, right? Like we know that when we begin to meditate, our brains physically become bigger and stronger. I always joke that like your mind is the only part that you want to be like fat and wrinkly. And, and it literally, it gets fatter and wrinklier with meditation, but you can't, like, you can't see those changes. And I, I think that, and especially in our culture, right. We're like, we want to see results. And so something like Asana, awesome, where you're like, Oh, like I can feel my body getting stronger. Like I can see my muscles becoming more defined. I can see my mobility and flexibility improving. Other people are noticing. Like I just think we put more value on that, which, which I think is a shame. Um, but a lot of times the way that I talk to people is, and I might even tell them like, yeah, these aren't necessarily results that you'll see, but they'll be results that you'll feel. And so when I get people that, you know, talk about their anxiety or their insomnia and I'm like, what if you could reduce your anxiety even by 10%? Like how life-changing would that be, right? Like it would transform your life. And they're like, yeah, that would be completely transformational. Or I think, or I tell them like, what if you could fall asleep 30 minutes earlier every night or an hour earlier every night, get an extra hour of sleep every single night. Like how transformative would that be for your life? And they're like, well, that would change, I mean, that would change everything. And I think it's just the way that you frame it because definitely people don't, I don't think they value meditation teaching one-on-one meditation teaching the same. But I am here to tell you that that once you start to teach people and they start to feel the benefits as opposed to just seeing them, they are absolutely hooked on it because, you know, we have people I just worked with a client and we worked for months. She has severe, severe anxiety and she was getting married and she was afraid that she couldn't make it down the aisle. We worked for probably four months before her wedding to work on a meditation practice and to work on her anxiety so that she could make it down the aisle. And we did like very specific work to that, you know, that one instance. And that is something that, I mean, yeah, you can't see your mind getting stronger, but just imagine the change that happens and the gift that you're giving someone for them to be able to to do something like that you can always work out and make your body stronger, more mobile, more flexible, but then you can also let it lapse and it'll go back to the way that it used to. But some of these changes that are happening in your mind, like they happen and they stay for much, much longer.
0: That's a great way of talking about it. I really like that. It kind of wraps around, I think we were talking in the beginning of the episode about the incrementality of meditation being one of the biggest challenges. But Mm -hmm. I love hearing that reminder that, the results last longer, so that's really important
1: yeah, and if and you just have to I would say with with almost all business and having and being an entrepreneur, the best advice I can give people is just know your audience, and if you know who you're talking to right so if i 'm talking to someone they don't suffer from anxiety if I tell them like well wouldn't it be amazing if you could decrease your anxiety by ten percent and it'd be like no, because that's not my issue. Like you need to know your audience. Or if you have people that aren't necessarily that receptive to meditation or don't see the value in it, get to know them, understand your audience, and then explain it in a way that's relevant and important to them. And that's going to be different for different people. I mean, if I'm in the workplace talking about meditation, I'm going to talk about it in a different way than if I'm in the studio and I'm doing, you know, an intro to meditation workshop for, you know, my fellow teachers or whatever it is. And you need to know your audience, whatever it is that you're trying to share with people, know who you're talking to. It will completely transform kind of the, the business aspect.
0: On this podcast, I love to give a little homework or invitation for growth. So if you have any thoughts about an action that the listeners, anyone listening can take
1: this week, that would be really cool. Meditate every single day for one week and make your appointment with yourself. First 10 or last 10, find a comfortable position. Don't break your appointment. Meditate every day for 10 minutes for one week. So my meditation podcast uh, is called Mindful in Minutes. It's all um, guided meditations, less than 20 minutes. You can find it wherever you are currently listening to our voices right now. Uh, So just type it in the search. And then uh, you can always send me an email. I do actually respond to every email that I get. Um, My business coaches aren't thrilled about that, but it's important to me. So that's info at yogafreeonline.com. And then pretty active on Instagram. So at yoga for you online. And if you send me a direct message, a DM, if you just have questions about anything that I talked about, like I really believe that it's important that we support one another and that we share what we have to share with one another. And so if you have any questions or need help with anything, just send me an email or a message. I will respond to it. I
0: will (laughs) include all those links in the show notes. And I just want to say thank you, Kelly, for coming on the podcast. It was a real pleasure.
1: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
0: I really appreciate it. I hope that conversation was helpful for you. It certainly was for me. I thought it was refreshing and uplifting to be given so much permission to make a meditation practice that works for me. If you are interested in studying with Kelly Moore, she has offered a 10% off discount code to any of her trainings for podcast listeners. You can use the code YFYCREW To receive the discount. So that's Y-F-Y-C-R-E-W. If you have your own insights on teaching and practicing meditation, I would love to hear them on the Yoga Teacher Resource Facebook group. If you're not a member, it's super easy to join. Go to teachingyoga.net slash join. Just make sure that you do answer the questions. Because that's how I make sure that people are paying attention to which group they're joining and not just joining a whole bunch of groups at once to spam or self promote. If you've been keeping up with the podcast, then you might remember that I took a few weeks off of recording to go help my sister with her newborn twins in the Netherlands. While I was there, I got notice from my sound editor that he is shifting his focus away from audio to other types of work. So I was put in a position of needing a new sound person. So this episode is the first one with my new sound person, and I would love your feedback on whether or not you notice any kind of difference in the sound quality. While I was gone in the Netherlands, I did record ahead, and I was trying so hard to get recorded all the way up through the new year, but I did not make that. So this outro and intro I'm actually recording on Christmas Eve. I'm very grateful to my husband because he's been really patient with my choice to work over the holiday, and he understands my sense of urgency to get an episode out every single week. I imagine that you would probably be fine if I skipped a week, and I'm not even sure whether you would notice or how many people would notice, but it feels like a part of my practice to release an episode every week. This is Kind of similar to what Kelly was talking about with meditation. It feels like a commitment to me. Once you're listening to this, whether it's when it's released on Thursday, the 27th, or after that, it will be past the major midwinter holiday. And most everybody's going to be looking towards the new year. For yoga teachers, this is the busy season. And I hope it feels uplifting and energizing to see fuller classes and hopefully really motivated students. However, as teachers and as longtime dedicated practitioners, we know that the deepest benefits of yoga come with sustained practice. So I feel like in the new year, there's a few different opportunities to consider. Sometimes our regular dedicated students feel overwhelmed by the surge in class size. I wonder if there's a way that you could create a series class with limited enrollment that you offer to your regular students first, a reward to them for staying committed, and a way for them to kind of dive deeper, to use the energy of the new year to go deeper into their practice without having their teacher being distracted by all the new people who might need more attention, but... You don't want to neglect your most dedicated, most regular students. At the same time, how can you support the new students to stick with their practice once their initial excitement about the new year wears off? One idea would be to either buddy them up together or even, if possible, depending on your the culture of your studio or where you teach, maybe you could buddy each new student with an older student. All of these things work better in a series class format, so I'm a big proponent of that. And if you haven't taught a series class yet, I wanna encourage you to figure out a way to experiment with it. I would also love to hear your strategies, your ideas for riding the wave of new year enthusiasm without neglecting your steady and devoted students and also without neglecting your own practice. I hope that you'll take Kelly up on her invitation to meditate every day this week. And if you're excited about getting support with your teaching or your business in 2019, I would love for you to schedule a strategy session with me. You can do that at teachingyoga.net slash coaching. Until next week, this is your weekly encouragement to put your own personal practice first to make that appointment, like Kelly said, that appointment that you wouldn't miss okay, I'm going to be a little bit real here right now and tell you that with my kids home from school, I have definitely had some days where I practiced a lot less than I would have liked to. I mean, I always get a little bit in, but once you get used to a certain chunk of practice, you can really feel throughout the day. It's like my body feels it. My brain feels it when I don't get as long a practice as I'm used to. And I'm Working with being gentle with myself and also using that feeling as a motivation to carve out better, to do better about carving out time for myself. And I hope you will also. Thank you for listening and Happy New Year.